When it comes to addiction and recovery, everyone has something in common, a story. My name is Pastor Ed Treat, and I am founder and developer of the Center of Addiction and Faith. I've been in recovery from addiction for 34 years, and I've been a Lutheran pastor for 25 years. Throughout my years as a pastor, I've been frustrated that faith communities have paid little attention to an issue that is very pervasive and impacts so many. Addiction takes many forms, and it's a problem requiring a spiritual solution. I believe that the church could have an enormous impact on addiction if they would begin to learn more and do more. This is the mission of the Center of Addiction and Faith, to awaken faith communities to address addiction. Welcome to my story, Stories of Addiction and Grace. Joining me for our episode today is Pastor Joey Pusatori. Pastor Joe is an ordained Disciples of Christ pastor, and he's also the senior pastor of the First Christian Church in Danville, Kentucky. We recently met when Joey contacted me about the work he's doing with a group of other pastors in his denomination to deal with addiction. We have many of the same ideas about what the church should be doing, and we're excited to be working together in the days ahead. Today, he shares his story on a Friday morning on a Zoom call with me in the studio of Minnesota Podcasting and Pastor Joe in his beautiful office in Danville. I'm here today with uh, Joe Pusateri. Is it Pusateri? You got it. I got it. And Joe is uh, sitting in Danville, Kentucky, and uh, he's sitting in his office. He's a pastor there of the First Lutheran Church in Danville. First Christian Church of Danville, Ah, Kentucky. Thank you. Disciples of Christ. Disciples of Christ. Yep. And so I'm stumbling on this introduction because I, you know, you and I just got to know each other. Yeah, so um, I, um, uh, Joe uh, reached out to me weeks ago and uh, was interested in what I was doing with the Center of Addiction and Faith, and uh, so we're, we're just sort of starting a relationship, but in that conversation, we, uh, I found that I was, we were just kindred spirits. One of the things that, that I feel real connected with you with, Joe, is the uh, fact that you got into recovery and then got into ministry. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the clergy I know got into the ministry and then got into recovery. And there is a different experience there. I mean, it is a little bit different. It's a different uh, uh, dynamic. And it's, I don't know if I could really put my finger on that, but I, I listened to your story and, and I noticed some of the same things that I've experienced. So that was cool. And I think that's part of why I have a kind of a kindred spirit with you. But, but we're here to hear your story, not mine. So tell us your story, man. What, what was it like? Uh, well, thanks for having me. I appreciate you asking, and it's always a, a pleasure uh, to share my story because I do believe in the power of uh, identification that comes when you hear a story told, and uh, that's definitely how I got sober, was I heard enough other people tell their stories that I was able to make an identification and think to myself, wow, you know, you you seem to have been a lot like I am now, and despite my um, reservations, if this thing got you sober, then maybe it'll work for me too. Uh, so I love the opportunity to do this. Um, so I started drinking. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of an alcoholics alcoholic. Uh, I've experimented with different drugs. I've probably tried everything that's available, but um, you know, 90% of, of my drug of choice was ethyl alcohol. And I started drinking at age 10. 
And when I say that I started drinking at age 10, I don't mean that I sipped grandpa's beer. I mean that I started drinking at 10. And the way that happened was I had an uncle um, who came to live with us. He was uh, 25 years old, out of the Navy, long red hair, tattoos, uh, piercings. And I just thought he hung the moon. I thought he was the coolest guy in the world. He was funny. He was artistic. Um, he had been around the world. He was 25. I was 10. He was moving from California back home uh, to be with family. And he shared a room with me. Now I was a, a, a scared kid with no friends. You know, I, I, um, I didn't have a really good time kind of at that age, you know, my parents were divorced and I got bullied a lot in school and so forth. So I went from, you know, kind of feeling alone in the world to having who I thought was the coolest individual in the world <laughs> living with me. And one of the things he did is he drank and, he, and we would sneak out of the house together. And at 10 years old, I didn't think there was anything wrong with that. It was just an adventure, but we would sneak out of the house at night, walk up to the grocery store and we would buy maybe a 12 pack or 18 pack, walk back to the house and, and start drinking. And he would, he would drink and then he would give me like the last third of, you know, the beer every now and then. And then after a while, he just started giving me beers. So I'd get pretty intoxicated and, uh, and I'd wake up with hangovers, you know, and I would wake up and say to myself, you know, I'm not going to do that again. Uh, if he offers me alcohol tonight, I don't like the way I feel. I'm not going to do it again. And then um, sure enough, you know, when the evening came and the offer was made, I, I did. So um, that started when I was very young. Um, and I, I, I would like to mention that only because on one hand, I'm not one of these people that believes that that made me an alcoholic. Uh, I'm one of the people that believes that there is some type of genetic, perhaps inheritable component of alcohol, uh, alcoholism, and um, various events will, you know, trigger it, you know, it'll help bring it out. And so this is just a part of how that came out with me. And I associated drinking with feeling a part of, uh, feeling like an equal. My uncle treated me like an equal. You know, he talked to me like a man. And so I made a lot of associations with alcohol. And uh, it was more than just feeling euphoric when I drank for me. So uh, I didn't drink a lot after that point, but it was kind of every chance I got. And so as a middle schooler, you know, you don't get a lot of opportunities to drink. But if I went to a friend's house and there was alcohol, I'd find a way to sneak and drink some. Um, there wasn't a whole lot in the home because my mom grew up with alcoholism in her home. And so we just didn't have it around a lot. But I'd go to parties and so forth through high school. And then when I was a senior in high school, uh, a lot of things shifted. So uh, I started hanging out with a different group of people. And these people like to drink and they like to smoke pot. And I was at a point in my life where um, I was very uptight. You know, I had a lot of anger and resentment towards my stepdad at home and, you know, wasn't really getting along well. I, I did well in school, but uh, my home life wasn't great. And I started hanging out with these group of people. And after about six months of watching them drink and, and smoke pot the way that they did, I finally started to participate. And I, I marked that as when I began drinking alcoholically, because for me, to drink alcoholically means that I'm doing it for a specific purpose. And for me, it was for the specific purpose of solving all my problems. Mm. And what I found is that when I drank, my anger at my stepdad went away, you know, my uh, frustration with my teachers, with my friends, with the girl I might be dating, all of that melted away. And I finally felt on the inside the way other people seem to look on the outside. 
And so at about 17 years old, I began drinking daily. And, uh, and like I said, you know, pot smoking was in there. I did a lot of that up until about age 20, 21. And then it just didn't quite affect me the same way. And so, you know, I transitioned to exclusively alcohol. Uh, this was all in Texas. I, I graduated high school in Texas. I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, which is where my family all resides now. But uh, I graduated high school in Texas. How did you all- get from Louisville to Texas? Uh, my mother remarried mm-hmm. and my uh, stepfather had a job that moved him to Texas. And so they got married and in very short order, the whole family was uprooted mm-hmm. and taken to a new town. Yeah. And that became that became kind of a theme in my life because uh, when I started drinking, I stopped developing coping skills, right? Because alcohol was my coping skill. Uh, so among the many things that I would try to do to deal with problems would be to get up and move. So I've moved a lot in my life and that was something I just became accustomed to very early on. And I've lived in a lot of different places and it's easy just to compartmentalize sections of my life. That was Mm. the Texas years. That was the Indiana years. That was the new Orleans years. Um, so I went to college at Indiana university in Bloomington. And, um, for me, uh, I, I was a good student made straight A's in high school School was the absolute last thing on my mind when I went to college. And for me, it was all about the freedom. So I had a stepdad that, you know, was very, he was a disciplinarian. He was very strict. He didn't let us have a whole lot of freedom. And when I got to college, I remember going to the RA on my floor, the residential assistant who lives on the floor in my dorm. And I would say, okay, so like, you know, when's the curfew? And he was like, you know, oh, there's there, there's no curfew, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, but I mean, you know, like, when do I need to be back in in the building? He's like, oh, well, you got a key, you can just come and go as you please. <laughs> I said, I I know, but like, when do I need to be back? And he said, buddy, you don't ever have to come back. <laughs> You're an adult. You're free. You can do whatever you want. And and for me, that was that was the only thing that I could think about when I was you know a, a, a freshman sophomore, and so. Um, you know, I just went crazy. I, I, I didn't go to class very often. I found people that like to drink like I did, who like to smoke pot like I did. And that's all I wanted to do. And um, I remember thinking, you know, let, let's do something fun. Let's have no sober in October, in uh, October of 1996, my freshman year. And that went so well. We were like, let's have no, no sober in November and no sober <laughs> in December. And, and we just stayed drunk the whole time. And you were probably a good enough student where you could bluff your way through most of your classes minimally, right? Well, I was a comparative literature student. So, you know, there's a lot of subjectivity when it comes to um, the papers that you would write. I mean, I'm I'm synthesizing, you know, connections and meaning out of texts and film and so on and so forth. So there's, it's kind of that there's no right answer kind of work. So if you're, if you're good at uh, spinning, um, you know, uh, spinning a creative idea, you know, then yeah. you can get by doing something like that, just on your wits, being clever and cute. Yep. <laughs> so um, college, you know, I went two years, um, drank all the time, didn't take it seriously. I uh, got really, really depressed. Uh, some people in my family died, my my grandmother, uh, grandfather, um, you know, I had a very destructive, emotionally abusive relationship with a girl. And, and, uh, I had a suicide attempt at the end of my sophomore year. And when I recovered from that, 
you know, and I, of course, was absolutely hammered at the time, you know, when that happened. So that happened in the summer and I took the next year off and I thought I need to get my head on straight. So I worked full time at a steak and shake. So I worked there, you know, in the mornings, um, you know, serving coffee to old retired farmers. And then, um, you know, I'd be off at noon and I'd go home and smoke pot, drink, you know, just I'd write. I'd love to write uh, short stories and worked on a novel that year. And it was a it was a good year to kind of step away from everything. And when I went back, you know, I went back on my own dime. That was one thing. And I went back uh, and did a lot better in school. Um, of course, I drank through all of that. I mean, I was a daily drinker, but I you know, graduated with a, a very, uh, you know, respectable GPA and so forth. And then um, there was a group of us that decided that we wanted to move somewhere after college. And um, notice I didn't say after graduation because I didn't graduate. <laughs> I just, you know, after five years, I was ready to go. But we decided to move to New Orleans. And, um, you know, I, I wanted to go to Austin, Texas. I got outvoted three to one. Everyone wanted to go to New Orleans. So we go to New Orleans. And what I tell people, so when I, when I tell my story in a 12-step group, I say, you know, if you're not done drinking, and if you're not done drinking, you know, no, no judgment here, but if you're not done drinking, like get to New Orleans, like that's where you need to go. <laughs> don't waste your time wherever you are. Like, you know, don't pass go, don't collect $200, like get directly to New nice, Orleans. Nice. Because in my experience, um, everyone drank like I did and there was nothing stigmatized about it. There was nothing shameful about it. I mean, people are drunk all over the place on a Tuesday afternoon and, mm. You know, you step over drunk people. It was it was a mess, and we were there for two years. And I, you know, worked at a restaurant and worked till two in the morning. Got off at two, went home, picked up the dog, took the dog to the bar, and we would drink literally, literally until the sun came up every night. You know, we would watch the sun rise from the bar, and you wouldn't think a bar would be hopping at six a.m., but in New Orleans it is. I mean, it was unlike anything else I've ever experienced. So, uh, you know, worked, made a lot of money, waiting tables at a very nice restaurant and had nothing to show for it. We basically drank it all. Um, so we got married in the time that we lived there and then we realized this place was going to kill us. So um, we decided to go back to uh, closer to home. So my wife is from Southern Indiana. My family's from Louisville, Kentucky. Lexington, Kentucky is about an hour away from one and three hours away from the other. So we thought that was close, but not too close. She wanted to get a second degree. I needed to finish my first. So that's what we decided on doing. Now, here's the thing. Up to this point, had you asked me, you know, do you think you could quit drinking? Um, it would not have been a relevant question. It would not have been a question I'd be too interested in answering because it was a moot point. I didn't want to quit drinking. I don't know if I could have. Probably couldn't have. But I, I didn't want to. Uh, and the reason is this. I knew that alcohol took a toll on me. I knew that it exacted a cost. The problem was, uh, or the benefit at the time, however you want to look at it, is that what it was taking out of me, a failed class here or there, a botched relationship, a year off from talking to my parents, you know, uh, waking up on the floor in a puddle of my own urine, you know, getting fired from a job, a night in jail, what I would have to, to pay for my use uh, of alcohol was less than what I was getting out of it. Mm -hmm. 
right? right? And what I was getting out of it is I felt like a complete human being. And this is what I think people who, who are not like me don't understand is that I'm an alcoholic and that doesn't mean that alcohol is my problem, meaning that alcohol is not the source of my problem. It creates problems. Don't get me wrong. It can wrap my car around a tree. It can mm-hmm. you know, cause all kinds of problems here. But the issue is that I'm, I was drinking to solve a deeper problem. I was self-medicating. You know, it scratched an itch that nothing else can scratch. And when you live your whole life feeling restless, irritable, discontented, uh, like some of the literature says, you know, when you feel like you don't fit in the world, when you can't adjust, when everything is just bitter and frustrating and there's no color, there's no joy, and then you can take a substance and suddenly you feel like a human being. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it was invaluable to me. It was invaluable. And I knew that I had to watch it. I knew I had to be careful, but it was worth it to feel like a functioning, you know, real human being rather than a miserable, uptight, anxious, depressed wreck all the time. Now, when I moved to Lexington, Kentucky, that's when things started to shift. That's when what I was getting out of alcohol began to diminish and what it was exacting out of me began to increase. And it really wasn't, um, DUIs and jail time or anything like that, it was more like the emotional toll. You know, it was it was beginning to corrode me from the inside out. I I became more secretive. You know, my personality changed and I started to become the person that I didn't want to be. It prevented me from becoming the person I did want to be, which was a good father, uh, eventually when we had children, and a good husband. And I just couldn't manage that. Uh, and the pleasure I was getting out of it, you know, that sense of ease and comfort that we get when we first start drinking was slowly, you know, going away. I was not getting that anymore. So in Lexington, um, I would notice the beer bottles pile up and I would think to myself, wow, like I don't have a, an endless stream of people going through my apartment to blame that on. That's all me, hmm. you know? And what I didn't want to happen was for my wife to challenge me on my drinking because I realized I started to realize that I, I was having a really hard time cutting back. I decide, well, I'm just going to get an 18 pack today, you know, instead of a full <laughs> case, you know, or, or I'll get just a 12 pack instead of an 18 pack. And then what would happen is I would find myself going to the store to get a six pack. And then I take the bottles from the six pack and put them inside the 12 pack or the 18 pack box you know, to make it look like I was still drinking out of the same case. So you could, so put, a, you could put away 24 beers a day. For, uh, there were periods of time when yeah. I would. Absolutely. That's impressive. Absolutely. And um, so what, and I, what I was going to ask about your wife, you mentioned her, how is she through all this? Um, well, she, you know, she, she drank like I did for a long time. And, uh, and my wife has since gotten sober as well. Um, her pattern was different over time, I was a daily drinker, 100%, no matter what. She was the kind of person, uh, and some people are like this, who could go a month, you know, who, who could go a period of time without a drink. But when she drank, it was out of control. And uh, so, you know, when we were in college, we drank the same way. When we were in New Orleans, we drank the same way. When we were in Lexington, we were both trying to grow up, and she was pulling it off a whole lot better than me. <laughs> Um, and I was, I was afraid she would confront me and I knew I didn't have a good answer. 
So realizing I couldn't control my drinking, I began controlling the appearance of my drinking. So that's when I drank a whole lot more in my car. You know, that was when I discovered that I could get a six pack of beer down between work and home or two forties, you know, 40 ounce beers. Mm -hmm. And once I realized that I did it every day, you know, and then in my mind, it's like I get home and I'm starting over from scratch. You know, the first beer I take is the first beer she thinks I'm having when Mm -hmm. really it's number seven or eight like that. Um, I, the levels I went to, to hide my drinking or to, you know, make the appearance to look less than it was, was extraordinary. And I tell people this, and I don't know if people believe me, but, um, I would have a word ready at any moment in my mind to quickly substitute if I was about to say something that say began with the letter S because I was so afraid of slurring mm. that if, if mm. I had had too many beers to drink and I was about to say something that began with the letter S, I'd switch it at the last second and say something else wow. so that I didn't, you know, I didn't look drunk. I was, of course, addicted to Visine and Altoids, you know, breath mints and so forth. Uh, there was a period of time where I had every dumpster in Georgetown, Kentucky, <laughs> where, where we lived for a while, memorized. So I knew where I could dump all my empty bottles and not use the same one all the time. Uh, I remember one time we we moved to a place called Georgetown, Kentucky, outside of Lexington. And at the time it was a dry county. And uh, and I thought, oh, this will this will help me cut back. Like, I'm so glad I'm being in a place where I don't have constant access to alcohol. And that was not true at all. I mean, all that meant is that I would drive further more often, you know, to get alcohol. And one place was like the first chance, last chance liquor store on the county line. And I would drive 10 miles to that liquor store on the county line. And one time I go through the drive-thru and there's a new person and the new person asks for my ID. So I reach to get my ID and somebody else sees me and goes, oh, no, 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 you don't need to card him. He's here all the time. (laughs) And I thought to myself, oh, I'm going to have to find another liquor store to switch it up every now and then so they don't think I'm an alcoholic. (laughs) Um, When we lived in Georgetown, uh, you know, there was a a grocery store about a mile away. And I remember I would quit drinking forever on Saturday. You know, I'm never going to drink again for the rest of my life. Then Sunday would come. Georgetown's a dry county. But because it was Sunday, that means I can't get alcohol in neighboring Fayette County Mm. where where Lexington is, unless I go sit down at a restaurant. So I would have to go to Cincinnati, which is an hour away, or Louisville, which is an hour away, to get alcohol at a store on a Sunday. And I remember one time telling my wife, I'm going to go to the store. It's a mile away from the house. And she said, well, can you take our daughter you know, with you uh, for whatever reason? And so I was like, okay, I'll do that. So I put my six-month-old daughter in the back seat in her car seat, and I drove 100 miles an hour to Cincinnati to get two 40-ounce beers so I could drink them driving 100 miles an hour on the way back with an infant in the backseat. And I, I try to always tell that story and remember that story because it reminds me of where my disease can take me. And, uh, and even though I've had what might look like worse bottoms than that, that ranks up there with one of the, uh, the worst spiritual bottoms or emotional bottoms. Um, so I ended up getting a job after working for the, uh, pharmaceutical company with a food service company. So I got back in the restaurant business, uh, but in sales this time. And I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Worked out of my car. So, um, you know, driving to restaurants all day long and, you know, people give you drinks and, 
Um, I was able to hide my drinking, you know, being on alone and on the go all the time. And, um, I'll tell two, two stories. So one is when my, uh, during this time, my oldest daughter was born or no, no, no. She was born before I started working here, but it was around that time when my, when my oldest daughter was born, um, when my wife had gotten pregnant, I said to myself, okay, this is what I've been waiting for. Like, this is going to be the motivation for me to stay sober. My wife is pregnant. She can't drink. Therefore I won't drink. And I won't want to drink because I want to be a dad. I want to be a good dad and I want to be there for her. And so I'm not going to drink, but I'm going to start that plan tomorrow because I just found out I'm going to be a new dad. That was a big surprise. So I'll drink tonight. Tomorrow, I'm never going to drink again for the rest of my life. And of course, I never quit. You know, didn't quit one day. I just had to hide it, you know, a lot more. And I remember when my daughter was born uh, in 2005 on Valentine's Day, I remember standing in the hospital room holding my infant daughter. And I, I'll, I will never forget this. I remember thinking to myself, this is the closest to God I have ever been in my entire life because literally she is brand new. She is a miracle. She's never hurt anyone. She's never offended anyone. She's never done anything offensive uh, in her entire life. She's just perfect and pure. And she's dependent upon me and her mother for life. And for this, I can quit drinking. And it's important for me to say that I meant that with every you know, fiber of my being, I meant that. It was real. It was genuine. I did not say that, you know, thinking to myself, well, I'll actually, you know, I'll, I'll drink later on. I, I believed that and I meant that. And with my wife and my daughter recovering in the hospital that night, I didn't make it past the first liquor store mm. until that peculiar thought made its way into my mind and said, now, wait a minute, you know, you're a new dad and that's exciting. That's, you know, that's a celebration. And uh, it's okay because they're safe. They're in the hospital. Just be you and the dog, you know, go home and you can drink. And tomorrow, you know, you'll never drink again for the rest of your life because, you know, I know that you meant that. And, um, you know, and I bought it and I went home and I got drunk and I, I couldn't believe it. I woke up the next day thinking I literally swore on my infant child I would never drink and I didn't even make it 24 hours. And so that really made me feel terrible about myself uh, for obvious reasons. And of course, that is a tremendous motivation to continue to drink because those are emotions mm -hmm. that are very hard to process or repress. Mm -hmm. So alcohol seemed to take care of that for me. Um, so the last thing I want to say is the last few years of my drinking, every day was exactly the same. Wake up, I'd swear on the heads of my kids, I'd never take a drink again for the rest of my life. You know, and I'd I'd say it over and over and over and over and over again in my head. I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to drink. I'd shower. I'd brush my teeth. I'd eat my breakfast. I'd be thinking, I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to drink. I would never talk to my wife in the morning on purpose. And the reason is because I was so afraid that I might say something and she would be like, we just talked about that last night. Like, do you not remember? Were you drunk? So in order to avoid that conversation being caught, I just didn't talk to her at all. And let me tell you, that will create problems in your marriage, like out of thin air that did not exist before. Uh, so I'd get in the car, I'd take off, go to work, and I'd be telling myself, I'm not going to drink, I'm not going to drink. But around noon, when, you know, my head had cleared a little bit, I'd have this other thought. And the thought would be like, you know, come on, Joe, you, 
you're a little bit of an extreme personality. And I'd be thinking, well, yeah, I guess I am. And saying you're never going to drink again for the rest of your life is a pretty extreme statement, isn't it? And I'd think, well, guilty. Uh, and then the thought would be, and if you think about it, you've never done anything crazy after one drink or <laughs> three drinks, really. So how about we revise our promise this morning that we will never drink 10 or more drinks, you know, again, for the rest of our life. <laughs> and I think about it, I think about it, I'd be like, man, the, the logic just makes sense. You know? <laughs> I, I've never done anything crazy after one drink. <laughs> so I, I just stew on it. I'd think about it. And then about five o'clock, you know, my orders are in, I got to go pick up my kids and I'd be thinking, okay, what am I going to do? So I drive to a Speedway gas station, convenience store, and I'd sit out front for a while and I think to myself, okay, this is crazy. You know, I'm just going to go get a beer and it's going to be okay. Cause I just kind of need that beer to take the edge off. So I'm just going to go get a drink. It's not a big deal. Uh, and I get out of the car and by the time I get to the front door, I decided on two because who drinks one beer? I mean, I've never in my life <laughs> drank one beer. I'd take two to the bathroom with me, you know? So, okay, I'll, I'll get two. Then I get to the place where the beer is and I decide, well, three is better because at three, I can feel it. Uh, and I want to at least be able to feel it. Otherwise, I'm just wasting my money. And I walk to the counter with four every time. And to show you the level of denial and delusion that, you know, I lived in as an alcoholic, these weren't four beers. These were four 24 ounce cans of Milwaukee's best ice. So it's higher alcohol content and it's double the volume. So it's like nine and a half beers, you know. So I drink those. And then I think to myself, oh my gosh, I've done it again. I can't believe I'm doing this. And then I'd make up some kind of story about, well, what I really need is just to get my whole life together. I need more to quit drinking. I need to get on a diet. I need to get up earlier and work harder at work. I need to pay off this debt. I need to, you know, join a gym, you know, heck I'll become a vegan. You know, I tell myself all these things and I'm going to start this new comprehensive life plan tomorrow. So I'll just go ahead and get good and drunk now. So I pick up my kids, I go home. My wife would be cooking, she'd be holding an infant, you know, and, and I'd be like, I got to go lay down for a second, you know, and I'd go lay down, pass out. Next day, I'd wake up, no recollection of the night before, and swear on the heads of my kids, I'd never take a drink again for the rest of my life. So that's what I was like. So when did, happened, you, when did your blackout start? Do you remember? You know, it's funny. When I first heard about blackouts, um, I thought, well, I never did that, you know, because I, I, I didn't understand what it was. And then somebody described what a blackout was. And a blackout is when you don't remember the night before, you know, it's like a, your memory's been erased. Right. And I thought, oh, that happened all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, probably uh, in my college years, I mean, probably, you know, a good 10 years of my drinking, I, I probably blacked out quite a bit. Um, and towards the end, and I'll tell you, the reason I drink exclusively beer at the end is because I knew that I'd kill myself drinking liquor. I drink mm. so much so fast that beer would slow me down. And uh, I figured I'd get full before I would get too drunk. Mm. And if I drank bourbon, which I love bourbon, um, I knew that I would just go way past the line, you know, as, as fast as possible. So what happened to me is, you know, I... Um, I woke up one morning and my wife wasn't there and there was a note, you know, and, and the note was full of pain and hurt mm. and confusion. And she loved me, but she was scared. and Had, she, she, was been, had she been on you about this uh, by now? 
Was she was she confronting you or saying anything? I mean, were you surprised by that note? No, no, I wasn't surprised about it. Uh, but if there's a stereotype of like, you know, the and I don't even like using this word, uh, you know, the nagging wife, she wasn't that at all. I mean, there would be times where I would drink a whole lot. And the most she would say is, I'm worried about you. Um, you know, that kind of stuff. Now, we would have arguments and fights, but they were always in the medium of alcohol. They weren't usually about alcohol. Um, so I got a note, you know, and the note was because the night before, you know, I said I needed to go to the store to get some stamps, which was just an excuse to get out of the house and go drink. And when I came back, you know, I was clearly drunk and she confronted me on it. And for the first time in my life, I confessed. I said, yes, I've been drinking. And, and that's the last thing I remember, you know, and woke up the next day and there was a letter. So I decided I was going to go to uh, a 12 step meeting. Now my alcoholism runs very deep in my family. Uh, neither one of my parents are alcoholic, which is amazing, but most of my aunts and uncles and three of my four grandparents, I think, uh, were alcoholic. So, uh, and, you know, a lot of cousins and so forth. Uh, so I have an aunt and an uncle on my dad's side, and I had an uncle on my mom's side who had all gotten sober in 12-step recovery, you know, over 30 years ago. And so I knew that it existed. I just didn't know anything about it didn't know how it worked, didn't know what went on in those meetings. I just knew that it was there and it happened to work for Aunt Denise, you know, and Uncle Larry and Uncle uh, Glenn. So I decided I was going to go. I hope you're enjoying this podcast. The Center of Addiction and Faith will present a new inspirational story about God's saving work every two weeks. I hope you'll subscribe and listen to them all. Along with these podcasts, the Center of Addiction and Faith is offering many other helpful resources. We have our annual conference that brings together today's best and brightest theologians, speakers, authors, scholars, and practitioners in the field of addiction studies. We also offer a monthly webinar on addiction with a special focus on racial issues. We have a growing number of online 12-step recovery and support groups, some specifically just for clergy. We have training events to develop addiction ministry programs. We support advocacy work. We are developing online education for understanding addiction in the context of doing ministry. We offer daily devotions. There's more we want to offer. After our first two successful conferences, there was overwhelming encouragement that I continue to do more of this work. After a long and prayerful discernment, it became very clear this was God calling. In fact, I've never been more sure about what God wanted me to do. What's also clear to me is that I will need a lot of help to make all this happen and keep it going. I don't like asking for help, but I can't do this alone, and I can't get help if I don't ask. So I'm asking, will you please help me do this work? Will you make a donation? Or better yet, will you make a regular monthly commitment of any size to sustain this work over time? Even small gifts given regularly make all the difference. If your answer is yes, please go to our website, addictioninfaith.com, and click on the Donate button and help me as I work to help others. Thank you for listening, and God bless you. The first meeting I tried to find, I couldn't find it in the building. I just got lost, couldn't find it, so I gave up. The first meeting I actually went to was on... Um, 
a Monday uh, in August of 2007. And I walk in like five minutes late and, you know, but not, not so late that they didn't ask the question, is this anyone's first meeting ever? You know, and I raise my hand and everyone just, you know, turned to look at me with these great big smiles. And um, I don't remember anything that was said, except it felt like they were all talking directly to me, you know, and uh, I started going to those meetings every single day and I loved them. I really felt, I felt like it was the right place to be. I felt like I fit in, um, you know, and I felt like I was one of these people. Now I didn't get sober for about seven months. Now, to be fair, I used to drink every single day and just going to these meetings was sufficient to keep me sober for about 10 days in a row, just going to the meetings. And that was a miracle. But about 10 days, I'd have enough and my arm would be twisted behind my back, you know, emotionally, and I'd have to go get drunk. And I'd go back and I'd lie and tell people I was still sober. And then something would happen. I'd decide to come clean and start all over again. And that went on and on and on. I find, So I started going in August of 07. My last drink was March 9 of 2008. On March 7th, hold on, March, yeah, March 7th, there was a great big snowstorm. I went to a meeting. It was like three people there. You know, I said I was trying to stay sober for my wife and kids. And somebody laughed at me and said, oh, you can't do that. You know, you have to do it for you. And I took that the wrong way and got very resentful. Uh, ended up getting drunk that night. The next day, there was, you know, two feet of snow on the ground. It was a Saturday. I couldn't get out of the house. So I went and shoveled like mad, you know, to get out. My wife thought I was a crazy person. She said, what are you doing? You know, you don't have anywhere to go. And I just thought I got to keep the drive clear, you know, in my mind, because I got to I got to be able to go get drunk. And uh, so I cleared the drive. I went and got drunk later that day. The next day I got drunk again and I got into a big fight with my wife. During that fight, I remember her saying things like, you know, when you started going to these meetings, I thought things were going to get better, but they really haven't. Now I'm telling her at this point that I was like three months sober and I was drunk in, in the fight, you know, but I was telling her, how dare you? I've been trying so hard. You know, I've not had a drink for three months. And the next day I woke up with one of those terrible hangovers and I had the same thought the next morning that I always had, which is, you know, maybe today's the day, you know, maybe today's the day that I never drink again for the rest of my life and it's going to get better and I'm going to stay sober and life's going to improve and it's all going to be great from here on out. Now, I thought that all the time. The next thought I had, I had never had before. And that thought was, no, this is the best day of your life from here on out. It is never getting better than it is right now. Because who are you fooling? Any day now, you're going to get a DUI. And because you have a company car and they have a zero tolerance policy, you're going to lose your car, your job, your money, and your house in quick succession. Your family will probably hang on for a while, but they're sick of you. They'll leave you after a while. Maybe, maybe you'll hit a tree drunk and die. And that's how this whole thing ends. Maybe you'll hit somebody else, you know, and kill them. Maybe you'll hit a tree or somebody else and you'll kill one of your beautiful children in the backseat of your car because you drive drunk with them all the time. And you have to live with that for the rest of your life, you know, but don't be confused. Don't think it's getting any better. Like it's going to get worse and worse and worse, you know, and you're going to, you're going to experience uh, hell that you've never experienced before. And it terrified me, you know, and I believed it. I didn't like it, but I believed it. So in that frame of mind, I went to my next meeting. It was a Monday night. I see my sponsor 
and uh, tell him, hey, I got three months, you know, on Wednesday, you know, which is a total lie. And he said, great, you know, we really need to start the steps. And I, I was like, yeah, okay, we'll do that. You know, well, let's meet on Wednesday and we'll get started on the steps. I was not doing two things when I was going to these meetings. I was not doing the steps and I was not doing this thing that they asked me to do. Uh, my sponsor had asked me to do and other people talked about doing, which was getting on their knees and praying, asking mm. God to keep me sober. Now, I didn't do the steps for obvious reasons. Number one, you know, I'm a complicated person, right? And so I don't know what's going to fix me, but it's not going to be some 12 free steps that you find tacked to a wall in a dirty church basement. Like that ain't going to work for me. It's going to be like $300 an hour therapy. That's what's going to work for me. I'm complicated. I got a complicated history. My work for y'all, God bless you. Ain't going to work for me. And I'd read them and I didn't understand them. You know, I'd read those steps and I couldn't figure them out. They were kind of like Chinese to me. And I thought, well, if I'm not, if I don't understand it, why in the world would I do it? And so I didn't do it. And I didn't believe that they would work. You know, I just, I just thought, well, this is just not going to work. So I wasn't going to do it. Praying on my knees, I thought was the stupidest thing I ever heard in my entire life. And what happened was I was so convinced that this was going to be the end. And I was so convinced that it was about to get really, really bad, really, really quick that I thought, what the heck? What do I have to lose? The last thing that I want to happen is to die. And then everyone stand around my grave and say, you know what? If Joe only worked the steps, if he only prayed on his knees, he would be here today. I thought, I'm not going out like that. I said, I'm going to do the steps. I'm going to pray on my knees. And then when I die, you all will understand how truly unique I was. So I almost, I started doing these things out of spite, you know, so. (laughs) Totally I I started praying on my knees. I think in the program, they call it terminal uniqueness, right? (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. I was terminally unique. That was the the wall of difference that was impenetrable. I'm different than everybody else. mm Mm-hmm. And I found out I'm, I'm garden variety. Like it's, un, it's, it's amazing. It amazes me every day how typical my experience is, mm. um, which is, of course, ego deflating, but incredibly good news um, because it means what has worked for other people will work for me, too. Okay. So I started praying on my knees and every prayer for the first month was the same. It was like, you know, gosh, I hope my wife doesn't walk <laughs> right, in, right. you know. God, I, I know there's nobody up there. I feel really stupid saying this, but please keep me sober. Man. <laughs> and at the end of the day, it was like, you know, I know it wasn't you. But thank you for being okay. right. And and that was it. I mean, that that was my prayer life. And I didn't feel anything. I wasn't, you know, there was no presence of God going on. There was no sense of love and, and nothing. It was just, I felt very embarrassed to do this. And I started the steps two days sober, two days. So when I come in, you know, in 12 steps, some people, they wait a month. I mean, I, you know, I I see it all the time. They wait a year, two years. I know some people have been sober multiple years and say, well, I've never really worked the steps or I haven't worked them all the way. I I don't understand that. That's not my experience. Uh, I started them two days. And so when I sponsor guys, I say, that's what we're going to do. We're going to start right away. You know, um, and if it, if it takes a while, it takes a while, but we're going to get started right away. And um, I I say that to say this, that I was in the middle of a lot of lies. I did them for the wrong reason. I did them in bad faith without believing that they would work, you know, and uh, and I did them with no understanding of how they worked, the steps and praying. And the point is, it worked. It's almost like these things 
it's irrelevant whether you understand them. It's almost irrelevant whether you believe them. You know, just take the action, take the steps and see what happens. And uh, for me, that was amazing. So when I look back, I think at it like it this way, you know, if, if I were to come to you, um, Ed, and say, you know, I don't know you, I don't really want to know you, I'm not really interested in, you know, getting to know you better. Um, I'm not even 100% sure that you exist. But if you do, I not only blame you for all the world's problems, I blame you for my problems as well. Can I borrow 20 bucks? You know, <laughs> right, right. You I mean, you're me a nice guy. You you're out? a nice guy. <laughs> Most people would probably say no. <laughs> but that's the way I came to God. Yeah. I said, God, I don't know you. I don't want to know you. I'm not interested in you. I think all the people that follow you are idiots. You know, uh, I'm not sure you exist. And if you do, boy, I blame you for every problem in the world. Mm. Would you save my life? <laughs> and you know what? That God said yes. Like, that's amazing to me. Like, that's the only kind of God I can believe in. I can't believe in Santa Claus. I can't do it. I cannot believe in, in the image that so that is put up so often of a God that if you do the right thing and you say the right words, and you believe the right way and you're part of the right community, God will sprinkle these blessings on top of you. I can't believe that. The only kind of God I can believe in is like the father of the prodigal son who is standing out in the road day after day after day after day waiting for his boy to come home. His wife was probably like, Stop torturing yourself. Come on inside. He's not coming home. He's yeah. dead. And that father is like, no, I'm going to stand here because I just know he's going to come over that hill any minute. And it says in the text, like when he was a long way off, a long way off, the father goes into a dead sprint and runs towards him. And all this time, God was over my shoulder saying, you know, like the fact that you're hurting hurts me. And I'm just waiting for you to turn around. And say, help me, because there's nothing more that I would like to do than to help you. And the moment I turned, you know, despite all that disrespect, despite all of that rebellion, despite all of that misconception and unbelief and all of that, like God, it, it didn't wait very long. I mean, he was right there for me. And, and I'll do anything for that God, anything. Uh, but it's the only kind of God I can believe in. That's the only conception that works for me. Um. So, you know, when I, when I tell my story, I usually end with um, a spiritual experience that I have. Of course, you know, if time permits and you're interested, I'd love to go into how I got into ministry because I'm not yeah, even yeah, in ministry I'm very yet. interested in it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the last thing I usually say is, you know, when I was a year and a half sober, I had worked the steps. Um, you know, I, I had gotten a few sponsees. My life was getting better. Uh, but I was going through a rough time because my wife was out of town for a little bit. And I had started going to a homeless shelter in Louisville called The Healing Place. And The Healing Place is amazing. I mean, it smells like urine and body odor, which I've come to find out is what heaven smells like. Mm. Um, you know, and it's, it's like you walk into this big room, it's dirty, folding chairs everywhere. And these guys come in in blue scrubs um, and they're off the street. You know, when they come in from detox, and they walk across the street to this room and they all sit at the very center of all of these chairs that are kind of in a horseshoe and they all sit at the middle of the horseshoe. And I mean, they look like they've just come in off the street. I mean, they're out of it. They're dazed. They're beat up. They're dirty. And then all these other people come in and we have a meeting, a 12 step meeting. And when I went for the first time, I would see these guys 
who had clearly been right up to the gates of death. And I mean, they were there at that moment. And then there were these other guys who came in every day and for fun and for free shared their experience of being right up to the line of life and death, right to the gates of hell and how the grace of God had pulled them back to tell the story of precisely how that happened so that these guys might be given hope. And, you know, where I got sober on the east end of Louisville, it's a little more affluent in the meetings I was used to. People were like, you know, my boss was mean to me and somebody scratched my BMW. And, (laughs) you know, like, I don't think I'm going to be able to retire when I want to because of my wreckage of the past. I mean, (laughs) high class problems. It's life and death at this treatment center. And when I was around it, just to be close to it and to see this electricity, this, you know, the presence of God was very, 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 um, you know, electrically available. It was, mm. it was palpable. And once I started going there, it was the only place I wanted to go. So I went to a lot of meetings at the healing place and, you know, just to get that very raw sense of God's grace. So shortly thereafter, I'm on a run near my house, seven mile run. I used to run a whole lot. And about four miles in, I had this overwhelming, what I now call the spiritual experience. Uh, at the time, it was just as hard to describe. It was like light and like wind and chills racing up and down my body. Time kind of disappeared. I had no sense of, you know, how long all of this took. But I, at this certain point, I just had this very visceral experience. And I felt like I could laugh and cry at the same time. And I saw visions, which for a long time, I would never tell people that because right. that just right. sounds weird. Right, right. Yeah. But, I mean, I, it, you know, it's not. I don't see like literal photographs, you know, out in the sky. It was just these very strong, vivid mental projections of uh, Mother Teresa, uh, Gandhi, Jesus, and uh, um, um, Martin Luther King. You know, if you tell tell the seminary those things, you won't even get in. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Keep that under wraps. Yeah. They they, they don't want any of that. (laughs) Oh, they don't. Um, So anyway, I... When it was over, I knew five things for sure, like I knew the sun was going to come up tomorrow. I knew that everything was going to be okay no matter what. Now, like I said, I'm not stupid. and I'm not naive. Like, I know a lot of things happen that are not okay. I know that. And I know that I'm not immune to things happening that are really not okay. But that's the point, is that even when those things happen, it's going to be okay in the ultimate sense, no matter what. Because ultimately, we're not connected. Our essence is not, you know, infinitely united with the fleeting circumstances in the wor- of the world as they are, you know, to the uh, ever-present, you know, loving God of the universe. Mm. That's what we're anchored to. So it's going to be okay. And I find that that's a very powerful message to people who are right in the middle of it. And so I always make sure I mention that part because I know that that message was way too big for me. That wasn't God talking to Joe. That was God giving Joe a message to pass on as widely as possible. It's going to be okay no matter what. The second thing was that we're all connected, all of humanity, in ways that I would never completely be able to understand, but inextricably. Uh, The third thing is that I had a purpose because I was so worried that I didn't have a purpose in life. I was so, so worried. Now, it might not be, you know, it might not be famous. I mean, it could be a very um, anonymous purpose. It could be a very small purpose. But in God's metric system, that doesn't that doesn't uh, matter. But I did have a purpose. I knew that I was 
able to experience the spiritual ecstasy or whatever, you know, whatever you could call that, so long as I gave it away, that the intention of what I was experiencing was not something for me, it was something through me. And so long as I kept the channel clear and I gave away what I was experiencing, it would continue to flow. And the last thing was that I knew it was okay. I just put everything in perspective. So the last thing was that I knew it was okay to let go of the hate and the resentment and prejudice and anger. And there's all those negative emotions, worry and anxiety, depression that collect. And I'm human and they, you know, they come back, but I know how to let them go now. You know, I, it's much easier to let them go. And I've never been the same since. Mm. Um, I was not, I, I think, I think we had just started going to a church um, I, I was not interested in the church. I was very satisfied with a nameless, formless God, which is what I was experiencing in 12-step recovery. Had no name. I mean, it was a, it was a loving power of the universe. And that uh, was good higher for me. Power. What, so yeah. uh, during that vision, you described uh, some theological insights. Those washed over you in that moment. Is that what I understand? Mm -hmm. So that's, wow, that's something. Yeah, and have you read William James's Variety of Spiritual Experiences? Yeah, yeah. yeah I used to be—I used to think I was so unique until I read that book. I thought, yeah, oh, okay, Garden Variety <laughs> Spiritual Experience. <laughs> yeah, very, I mean, it was very typical. Yeah. You know, there, those elements are—they articulate yeah. in yeah, different yeah. ways. It's kind of the essence of of what has been called a spiritual experience, yeah, right? Radical reorientation. Yeah. You know? Yeah, but and they happen to people in different ways, and and uh, it's it's rare and special to have them all in, in a moment like that. So that's that's unique. You know, everybody would like that, but not everybody gets that. Mm -hmm. Oh, so so you're going to church now, and you're coming to uh, to, uh, to a God with a name. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Um, so we're you know we're going to a church, and in uh, uh, in the, the reason we started going, I was I was going to my meetings on Sunday. And one day my wife comes home and she goes, I went to Middletown Christian Church, which is a Disciples of Christ Church. And she said, you'll never believe it. You know, the pastor was talking about the 12 steps. You know, maybe he's a member. You know, I don't But he was talking about the 12 steps and, and he seemed to know what he was talking about. And uh, and he said, and I joined the praise band. So you know, guess what you're doing <laughs> on Sunday morning. So I started going. And sure enough, now the pastor was not an alcoholic or an addict, but he did understand the steps very well. And he, and he had been preaching a series on the steps and he used, ex, you know, a lot of illustrations out yeah. of recovery, uh, which I thought was very powerful and, and, you know, spoke to a lot of people. Uh, and I was just going to church. Um, you know, I, I was just feeling neutral about it. It's like, you know, I got my God, you know, my God is just this power of love in the universe. And I am a okay with that. And then I was on another run. Uh, there's a theme here. Yeah. <laughs> that's why I stopped. That's why I stopped running. <laughs> yeah, right. But um, I was on a run in Seneca Park in Louisville on um, May 20. I think it was May 22nd of 2010, and I was heading around the bend about three or four laps in, and I had this overwhelming experience. You know, just kind of this. It's, it's really hard to describe. It wasn't like the first one. It wasn't like it wasn't ecstasy. It was just this overwhelming sense of God's presence, I guess. And there was a very clear message that could not have come out of me because I didn't know, I didn't, I didn't know what it was that was being said to me. But the message was that I needed to go to seminary and to get a master's of divinity degree. Hmm. Now, 
I knew that there were things called seminaries and I had heard about something called a master divinity, but I had no idea what it was. Like I didn't know what it was for or anything. And I thought, but you didn't hear, pa- God, you didn't hear pastor in that at all. No, gosh, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And God was smart not yeah, to use that right. word because that, I would have turned around that and same ran thing happened to me. Yeah. That's why away from Nineveh. There, yeah, there's yeah, no, yeah. Way. Exactly. no way. So I thought, well, that doesn't make any sense because I, I don't even really consider myself a Christian. Like, I, why am I going to go to a seminary? And, and there was this, you know, I mean, it wasn't God's voice, but it was this sense of don't worry about it. You know, like, I'm not asking you to become a Christian. I'm just asking you to go to seminary. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And um, so I really, I mean, I really, really wrestled with that. I got home and I was like in a cold sweat and I'm telling my wife about this. And I, I felt so weird even talking about it. And I was like, I don't even know what this is. And, you know, she just did, she asked some good clarifying questions and encouraged me to investigate. And she's like, well, if it's meant to be, it's meant to be. If, if not, maybe you got the wrong message. And, you know, if it's not meant to be, it won't happen. So I get online, I open up my laptop and I type in something like in Google, like disciples of Christ seminary online. And immediately LTS, Lexington Theological Seminary, pops up. And I'm like, great. <laughs> you know, like it exists. I, I had no idea. Hmm. So, you know, I, I look at the, the school, I, you know, put in an application and so forth. I put everything on the application, you know, felonies, criminal background. <laughs> I mean, I, I was very honest, you know, thinking trying, trying to disqualify yourself, right? Yeah, yeah. Like they, they won't take it. <laughs> Let's shut this you door know, right now. <laughs> And, uh, and then I get there and I sit down with the admissions uh, person and she's now the president of the seminary. And, you know, I tell her my whole story, alcoholic mm. and this and that. And she's, you know, I'm waiting for her to say something like, well, young man, like we really <laughs> appreciate your enthusiasm, but maybe you'll be better off, right, right. you know, somewhere else. And she's like, we've been waiting for you. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was the opposite of what I wanted to hear. And every door kept opening, every door kept opening. And, um, you know, so I, I went to my, I was working for my dad at the time. My dad is a very successful home builder and I was going to take over the home building business. And I was very okay with that. And I had to go to him and say, dad, I think our five-year plan has changed. You know, I, I don't, I can't quit right now. You know, I need this job. I said, but I don't know where God's taken me. And, um, you know, I found out later, number one, that an MDiv only has one purpose and that's for ordained ministry. You know, so God's tricked me on that one because yep. I thought, well, maybe I'll just become like a religious expert. Right. You know, like I, I'm an intellectual person. I like to just talk about, you know, abstract things. I'll just become a theological, you know, uh, teacher or, you know, guru or something. Or maybe I'll be a chaplain. I don't know. I like helping drunks. I had no idea, you know, that pastoral ministry. And then over time, of course, I became more and more used to that through training. And then I thought, but I don't want to be a preacher. Like, I don't want to preach. I just, I don't know the Bible really well. I'm, I'm uncomfortable. I just don't want to stand up in front of people and do that. That's not what I want to do. Um, so let me just say in that time um, to show you how good God is, you know, I started seminary, not even thinking I was a Christian within a year. Um, I had a full scholarship. I had, and I didn't even apply for it. You know, the, the seminary said, we have these scholarships available and we nominated you huh. and the sponsoring church accepted you. And so your seminary is paid for, you know, from here on out. And um, it was around that time that I think I became a Christian 
And when I became, and to say become a Christian is weird language for me. Uh, I fell in love with Jesus is what happened. And the way I fell in love with Jesus is I was sitting at my table one night. I was exhausted. I've been working on a paper or something, you know, and I closed my eyes and I had this image that I hadn't thought about in a long time, which was when I was like 15 years old, I was visiting my uncle for what ended up being the last time before he passed away. And he had encephalitis at the time and he was almost nonverbal and it was a very um, excruciating thing to see. But I had walked in on my grandmother giving him a sponge bath. And so he was naked. And, you know, so I walked in, I go, oh, gosh, and I turn around and walk out of the room. Well, for some reason, I hadn't thought about that in 30 years, you know, for 20 something years at that time. It, it came into my mind and I, it dawned on me that that was Jesus. Hmm. Now, I don't mean literally that I was looking at, the, you know, the literal manifestation of, of Jesus. What I mean is that, like, that's that's what Christ is all about, that it's not by accident that he comes in the form of a human being and suffers so as to say that even though we don't get the answers that we want about why it is that they're suffering in the world and so forth, what we do get is a God that suffers in the most excruciating way with us, you know, and, and I realized like, that's the Jesus story out, you know, that was Mary, you know, holding the, uh, the, the body of Christ after it came down on the cross. I mean, Jesus came and became a broken human body because we become broken human bodies. And it all made sense. Mm. It all made sense. And I thought, that's that's the God that I believed in. And I just didn't know it. I, mm. that, it didn't have a name yet. And then it all occurred to me, that's what it is. It's Jesus. Um, you know, so that, that was a part of my awakening. Now, being an alcoholic and being in recovery has been a huge part of my ministry and it's absolutely shaped my ministry. And, um, I have this experience often, and I I feel like this is just the the perfect venue to say this, that, um, I can walk into a congregation, even my congregation, and I can see everybody, same race, the same tax bracket, the same voting block, you know, singing these hymns that we've all agreed by consensus that we like to to sing. And we all are the same, right? And then I go to a 12-step meeting Mm -hmm. and I see black and white and old and young and rich and poor and gay and straight and male and female and Republicans and Democrats and, you know, make America great hats and Obama shirts. And like for one hour, Mm -hmm. nobody cares about any of that stuff for that one hour, at least one hour, you know, we're all gathered around the idea that we suffer from a fatal disease and that we share that affliction together and that we share a common solution that not only brings us life, you know, and hope, but also brings us together despite all of these very superficial, you know, differences. Mm. And there's such a disconnect. And I think to myself, this is the kingdom of heaven. This is it. And and I I feel like maybe, and I don't know, but maybe God has called me along this path through all of these territories so that maybe I can help bring some of that into our experience in church congregations. 
and, and help us to cease to be such ideologically homogenous mm. groups of people. Because if we're all, if we met, if we're all of the same demographic, then I have a hard time believing that it's really Jesus that brings us together. You know, I, I, I just, I just don't believe that. But when I see a room full of alcoholics and addicts that are so completely different, they would never mix. It's like walking to the DMV. It's like, what in the world could possibly bring these people together? You know? Your passion is fantastic and inspirational. And I'm looking forward to getting to know you better and to working together and doing great things. And uh, I just think God is going to do, God, God ain't done with us yet, right? Yeah. Well, blessings to you, brother. And um, we will, we'll be talking. Thanks, Joey, and I'll, uh, I'll see you later. Have a great Thank you. Great, Take care. God yep, bless. You too. My Story of Addiction and Grace is a podcast production of the Center of Addiction and Faith, which can be found online at addictionandfaith.com. If you'd like to ask Pastor Ed Treat or one of our pastor upcoming guests a question that will be aired on a future show, Simply call 612-352-9177 and leave a message. Please know that when you leave a message, it may be used in whole or in part on a future podcast episode. Again, that phone number is 612-352-9177. Please hit subscribe on whatever podcast source you found us on and rate and review our show. We love to hear feedback. My Story of Addiction and Grace is recorded at the studios of Minnesota Podcasting, located in St. Paul, Minnesota. Find them online at mnpodcasting.com. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the individual participants alone and do not necessarily reflect the views, opinions, or policies of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the Center of Addiction and Faith, Minnesota Podcasting, or any other religious or business organization.